Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Well, the million-dollar Irishman Chris McGale has an incredible story to tell. Orphaned at a young age, almost killed in a car crash at 25, but then making millions on the stock market. Chris, we have an intriguing story to discuss this morning, but I'd like to start by talking to you about your close connection, the County Wexford. Good morning, Carl. Yes, um, I've been, I've been go- coming and going to Wexford for many years, 25 or more years. Um, my wife um, is from Adamstown, Neve Furlong. And her parents, Tom and Angela, and his father, Oren, who's administrator at the cathedral, and Tom and Louise and Magella, who lives here in London. So, yeah, I've got long-standing relations in Wexford. Great. Now, in the foreword of your book, The Million Dollar Irishman, Mickey Hart, the former Tyrone football manager, speaks about your successes in the stock markets, but ultimately he praises your resilience. Unfortunately, you needed resilience at a very young age. Yeah, we were orphan kids, so it's very unusual. I mean, first of all, our father died when I was three. Um, the other key character in the story is my brother Paul, who's 18 months older than me or was. And uh, I was three and he was four when our father died, so he was going five. And then our mother died when I was 12 and he was 13, going 14. And, um, you know, so the period between those two events, our mother had very much we were the Miguel's of John Street and we had a sort of strong resilience. Now, many people who had experienced that level of tragedy that you had experienced by the age of 12 may have followed a different path. But where did this resilience come from and what was driving your ambition to succeed? We were obviously, dare I say, fundamentally smart people. You know, we, we come from a good line, good in horse racing terms, good, good bloodline. And, uh, you know, our mother sort of really taught us that we were important people Miguel to John Street, and we went through school, you know, high-flying in primary school. I, I was the sort of guy who got constant attendance awards for not missing any days in any year, for many years, and, and, you know, came top of the class as an expectation, the same for my brother Paul. So, yeah, we were, you know, strong characters, let me put it that way. So talk to us about the pathway from school. What did you do next? Well, we had a really bad circumstance because what happened is um, our mother died in March after like nearly two years of dying of cancer. It was terrible, you know, skin and bones. And, um, you know, I was there at 12 years old, to give you a clue about the resilience, at two tempers two in the morning at Hospital Stroke Hospice in Oma. And um, a couple of months later, the the school um, gave my brother a bad beating and then as as a way of covering that up, expelled him four months after our mother died. He just turned 14. So I left too, and basically for the next number of years, uh, he went on the booze and I went to gambling, horses, I was a bookies runner, and basically spent my teenage years in a bookie show. And afterwards, you entered the world of investment, and ultimately you advised fund managers on the buying and selling of billions of pounds worth of shares for pension funds and major corporations. How did that break come about? I was gambling on horses from a very early age, so I, I have a, like an encyclopedic memory. I can re- retain the information on the lines of the columns of horse racing. It's just in the same way as you might be looking at death notices. And so when I went to um, uh, Queen's University, I went back to school at 18 and, and sort of did very well to get into Queen's, very lucky, really. But I did, and I came out of there, went to Deloitte, and then I saw an opportunity to go into investment. So I'd been punting um, shares at this point. It was very unusual in 1987. People, you know, it wasn't 24-7 business news at that time. 
Uh, and so they sort of said, what, you're doing what? And I said, well, it's the same as betting on horses, isn't it? And so I got a job with Ulster Investment Bank and, and never looked back, as they say. Over the past 10 years, in fact, plenty of my guests would have named famous mentors and business people who have helped and inspired them on their journey to success. But if it wasn't for a nurse called Karen, there may be no story at all to tell this morning. Yeah, it's... Um it's an amazing story because I was literally dying in the car. I had a major car crash. I went under a lorry at sort of 100 plus miles an hour. I mean, the combined speeds of both vehicles would have been probably 140, 150 miles an hour. So the lorry was coming down on the car, came right over the bonnet, over the over the engine, crushed the window, was about to behead me or do whatever it was going to do, and it landed on the steering wheel and turned the car. And then, so one in a million chance of surviving that. And then... Uh, I'm lying choking on the blood, and uh, this young lady who was 18 at the time, Karen, her name saved my life at the roadside. And apart from the physical injuries, what impact did this near-death accident have on your life and what you wanted to achieve from there? Um, you know, I don't remember the crash, and, and, and I suppose I spent the next couple of years trying to fight a court case, and that in itself was cathartic because I hadn't met or seen or heard of the lorry driver and, and felt that I had been nearly killed by someone who didn't care and, and, and made me very angry. So um, I went into court, lost the case uh, and went to London because I was completely broke. That's the story. So when you moved to London in the early 90s, talk to us about your initial experience there because, again, you ended up on the trading floor. Prior to the losing the court case, I'd met the executive of this firm in London. It turned out to be Merrill Lynch, and uh, they wanted to hire me. But I said, look, I'll take the job if, if, if I don't win the court case, which, and of course, I didn't, so I did, and I went to London. So what was a typical day in the London stock market like? Well, it's just very, very dynamic. You know, it's, it, it's like playing football or playing poker all day long, as I, as I used to say. You know, every minute of every day there's something happening, especially in the morning. The first two or three hours are, are huge. The, the announcements start coming out at 7 a.m. And, and you have a morning meeting and then you got all this um, pre- announcements from the stock exchange and some news will be good, some news will be bad, some news will be indifferent. You've got to work it all out. What's happening here? Does it matter? And if it does matter, what are we going to do about it? We're going to trade. You may then be trading all day long in relation to that, that, that advice. You, know, you could go on trading for a month on the decision you made on a day. Uh, and the, the challenge at all times was to be more right than wrong. And did that work out? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had 11 consecutive years of rising income, rising pay. Of course, the markets, the markets were going up, you know, from I went to London in 91 to March to March 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst. You know, you had nine consecutive up years. But I still managed to raise my revenues into falling markets in 2000 and 2001. That means you've got to do a whole lot more transactions to maintain and raise your revenues because the cost per trade is going down. So, you know, my revenue line in 2001 was $28 million, which on standard commission terms equates to about $14 billion of transactions. Uh, they literally are telephone numbers. What do you put your success down to? Common sense, street sense, hard work. You know, there's, there's no shortcut. When young people came in to join the firm, I used to say, there is no shortcut. You've got to read that stuff, learn that stuff, know that stuff. And so I, I knew everything about stocks and shares in the same way as I knew everything about horses. So these were things that, that I learned to do, a very single-minded approach from, from my teenage years. And Chris, your success in Merle Lynch was well-recognised and you were well-paid in that role. Yeah, I was, um, I was um, country manager for Ireland. I was the managing director of global markets and investment banking. 
and I was in the top 5% of Merrill Lynch, which is 70,000 people, and I was paid a million dollars a year. So, Chris, for those who are listeners that may have watched The Wolf of Wall Street, they may have a preconceived idea about what life at the very highest level is like on the trading floor. How realistic is that film in your experience, having been at the top of that market? Our business was institutional clients, so um, you know their their business, Wolf of Wall Street, is dealing with individuals calling them up and sort of making making people trade over the phone. That's very different from what we did. But on the other hand, um, there was a lot of money around. You know, everyone was getting paid telephone numbers. You know, and, and nobody really understood the value of the money. I certainly didn't. Um, um, there's just so much money, um, and so there's a lot of excess. You know, ourselves, we got married in Barbados, flew out on Concord, and you know, great life. Can't complain. Flew off to Beverly Hills afterwards. You know, uh, off to Hollywood, and uh, then flew back to um, to London and took a month off to get married. So it was a good time. If, for instance, you see a stock falling, do you get out of it quickly, or do you take a longer-term view in relation to it? There's no phrase that says never catch a falling knife, so never buy a stock that's falling sharply. That's rule number one. Um, usually the market knows better than, than you, and so if I have a stock and it's going down, I'm asking myself, what am I missing here? You know, is it, is it me or is it the market who's wrong? Usually it's you, not the market. So um, I, would be, I would always be wary about, you know, if something drops 20% in a short period of time, usually right, not, certainly not to buy it. You know, markets as a, as a whole going down, that's different. There's a jargon called buy on the dips. It's very widely used in the U.S. Um, but, you know, individual stocks going down, what we call stock-specific risk rather than market risk, is usually right to be careful about buying them on the fall. And what's your outlook for the stock market over the next three years? It's been a turbulent time since January, February of last year. A lot of stocks lost a lot of their value, but they recovered quite quickly once the vaccine came on stream. So from here, as we look out over the next two to three years, what is your outlook for the stock market? There's a couple of different things at play. One is uh, central banks are, are adding stimulus to global um, global financial markets. And, you know, they're basically what they call quantitative easing, which has been going on for 10 or 11 years. So that's boosting prices by, by making the, the cost of money go down and uh, the cheaper money is, the higher asset prices are and a very simple relationship. In terms of where we go from here, I mean, I'd be wary because um, we've had such a boom that we're set up for a fall at this point, I would think, because um, because the markets are so highly valued, you know, um, mostly in the U.S. has been tech-led. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been what they call the fangs, you know, um, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, uh, otherwise known as Alphabet, that sort of thing have been going up crazily. But again, they're going to grow and grow into this new environment that we're living in. But some other things like, you know, American Airlines or British Airways, AIG or even Ryanair, you know, things are going to be tough for some time. And why did you leave that chapter of your life behind? It's all about winning in the city, you know. I mean, you're only as good as your last trade. You know, I'd done 11 years of being George Best, you know, and Wayne Rooney, call it what you like, <laughs> the star striker in the team. You know? <laughs> There's only so much you can do, you know, especially in the falling markets. It's hard because every trade you're doing is a bad trade, so you're cutting bad positions. You know, you're selling something you bought five years before, it may have doubled and trebled in, in three of those years and then lost all its value in the next couple. You know, in the book, I talk about Aircom. Um, you know, I, I sold all the shares I had for a client on day one before they opened at, at nearly five euros, you know, and they went out at 130 or something. Um, you know, and 
another one was Baltimore Technologies, which a lot of people might remember. You know, I was very, very bearish in that and suffered the cut of a thousand knives for many years, but it was right in the end. And in relation to leaving that stock market, how much of a motivation to leave was driven by stress and pure burnout? Well, that's it. You know, it is stress and burnout. You know, as I said, it's like an ongoing game of poker. You know, so there's only so much you can take. The days are long. You know, every single day you're at your desk for seven o'clock. You know, the stresses are there. A lot of people are judging you all the time. You know, um, you're you're the you're the guy at the, in the vanguard. You know, and and everyone wants to bring you down. I mean, there's a lot of I felt a lot of negative politics that started to emerge. Um, I then had a couple of job offers and, and sort of thought, oh, well, I'll take a bit of time and take a bit of time out and, and went on sabbatical and never went back. So, yeah, it was probably a mistake today, but there we are. That's what I did. And Chris, in a related area, of course, in the last number of years, we've seen the emerging trend of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin leading that race. Do you think that these cryptocurrencies are here to stay? And what's your outlook in relation to the value of these over the next number of years? See, they, they have no what they call intrinsic value. You know, you know, it's not like a car; you can kick the tires, and you know what it's worth. You know, it, it's it's a judgment on what the right value is, and and I struggle with it myself. But having said that, had I been on this call a year ago, I'd been wrong, very wrong. So um, I, I, I do at the same time worry about the value. You know, sixty thousand dollars per coin. You know, I mean, there's also issues like. Um, the use of electricity every time they mint one of these coins, you know, they're, 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 it's, it's causing huge download of electricity and you've got all sorts of issues there. Um, you know, so I think that in the end, the big plus for them is that, that they're moving more and more into what they call the institutional market. They're being accepted more. You've got some of these um, MasterCard and American uh, and some of these big American firms have, have, have acknowledged them. On the other hand, you know, they're still widely regarded as being vehicles for money laundering. And there's always a risk, I think, of them being um, being pulled up for, for that, you know, by, by some of the American authorities, Securities and Exchange Commission. If that happened, they'd have a big fall. Chris, your life has been an absolute roller coaster, no doubt about that. Talk to us about your decision to write the book and what readers can expect from the million dollar Irishman. It's actually a fabulous story. You know, it's, it's, it's all sorts of different things. I mean, it's survival, it's uh, inspiration, it's, you know, this whole mindset of winning, you know, and people say to me, you know, I was a huge gambler and just stopped one day and people said, well, how come you stopped? And I said, well, I wasn't winning anymore, you know, and, and really it is that simple for me, you know. Um, um, so whilst I knew everything about horses and the, and the markets, you know, I, I'll do it as long as I'm winning. I won't do it if I'm not. You know, and, and people who are gambled should, should keep a little eye on their P&L and, 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 and remember that if we're losing every year, they should stop. So, so my, my story is full of different types of messages, but I get a lot of inspiration. You know, Mickey Hart wrote some great stuff about it. I mean, he said, he said at the time that anyone who faces crises in their lives and who hasn't will find much consolation in this work. So, you know, I, I, who better to say that than Mickey? He's an absolutely great man. So that's it. You know, it's a great story about about surviving and getting things wrong. I got lots of things wrong. And in the current day, you own two businesses, Tyrone Capital and Move2.com. What prompted you to move into the property sector and where did you see the niche in that particular space? There's a thing called Build to Rent BTR, which is basically an institutional type of investor buying the whole development. So maybe 300 apartments and, and then renting them all out. So not selling any. In fact, I won't buy them unless you get them all. 
And then, then I got into that because I sort of saw an opportunity to service institutional type clients using my Merrill Lynch business card. You know, managing director Merrill Lynch, you get through the door in these places. Um, and then after that, this was long after I'd left Merrill, just about five years ago. So then after that, I, I got into what's called housing associations. So both areas are what they call bulk property. In other words, they buy a big site and they populate the big sites with X hundred residential units and there's one buyer for them all. So it's the same type of thing. And are these for social housing or private housing? The housing associations today in the UK have moved very much into what they call shared ownership. So it is, it is under the banner of what they call affordable, so is social housing. So they, they, they have to provide so much affordable every year. That could be shared ownership where they, where they retain 50 to 70% and you buy 30 to 50% or and then you can buy out the rest over a number of years or it's purely rent for social rent. So it's a combination of things, actually. Chris, what trends do you expect to see in the property market following the COVID pandemic? Uh, in Ireland, um, I think one of the factors for Ireland is there's going to be an awful lot of inward investment still, foreign direct investment, you know, to sort of digress, the big opportunity is in Belfast, you know, um, not that I recommend today, but when the, when the peace property comes and we start talking about, a, you know, an all-island all economy as opposed to all-Ireland economy. So, so I think that for the moment, Dublin remains very, very strong because all the money's piling into Dublin and, and you know, and other areas like Galway and, and Limerick and, and uh, Cork. So the big cities should continue to do very well, I would say. Many business owners listening to this morning's programme are in the process of creating an action plan for them to reopen their business with. What advice have you got for them this morning? I mean, you're probably going to see quite a strong bounce back, actually, um, subject to the virus not um, having another wave, you know, as a third or fourth wave at this point. Um, so, so I think that the people who have survived thus far are looking forward to a bright future. Interest rates are going to remain low for a long period of time. People have savings. Some people have been big beneficiaries of the lockdown uh, who want to go and spend that money. Um, staycations are big because people can't travel. So for all sorts of reasons, I think it's a plus and we get a bit of sun over the summer. It uh, could be very good for Ireland. I completely agree with all of that. And finally, I'm also conscious this morning, Chris, that people will be tuning into the show that will have this idea for a new business in their head. What nuggets of wisdom can you share with them finally this morning? I would say know what you're doing, number one. Um, probably probably most important thing. Today, bricks and mortar, forget it. You know, you, you need to be doing something that's to do with what they call scalable businesses. And that, that basically is online. Well, if you've just tuned in, that was Chris McGale, author of the book, The Million Dollar Irishman. And I'm sure that Chris's engaging interview has whetted your interest in the book. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.